Chapter Two of Henry D. Thoreau. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Henry D. Thoreau by Benjamin Franklin Sanborn. Chapter Two. Childhood and Youth. Concord, the Massachusetts town in which Thoreau was born, is to be distinguished from the newer but larger town of the same name, which became the capital of New Hampshire about the time the first American Thoreau made his appearance in Old Concord. The latter, the first inland plantation of the Massachusetts colony, was bought of the Indians by Major Willard, a Kentish man, and Reverend Peter Bulkley, a Puritan clergyman from the banks of the ooze in bedfordshire and was settled under their direction in sixteen thirty five mr bulkley from whom mr emerson and many of the other concord citizens of thoreau's day were descended was the first minister of the town which then included the present towns of concord acton bedford carlisle and lincoln and among his parishioners were the ancestors of the principal families that now inhabit these towns concord itself the centre of this large tract was thought eligible for settlement because of its great meadows on the musquetaquid or meadow river it has been a seat of the massachusetts indians and a powerful sachem tahatawan lived between its two rivers where the assabet falls into the slow gliding muscataquid thoreau the best topographer of his birthplace says it has been proposed that the town should adopt for its coat of arms a field verdant with the concord circling nine times round i have read that a descent of an eighth of an inch in a mile is sufficient to produce a flow our river has probably very near the smallest allowance but wherever it makes a sudden bend it is shallower and swifter and asserts its title to be called a river for the most part it creeps through broad meadows adorned with scattered oaks where the cranberries found in abundance covering the ground like a moss bed a row of sunken dwarf willows borders the stream on one or both sides while at a greater distance the meadow is skirted with maples alders and other fluviatile trees overrun with the grapevine which bears fruit in its season purple red white and other grapes from these river grapes by seedling cultivation a concord gardener in thoreau's manhood bred and developed the concord grape which is now more extensively grown throughout the united states than any other vine and once adorned in vineyards large and small the hillsides over which thoreau rambled the uplands are sandy in many places gravelly and rocky in others and nearly half the township is now covered as it has always been with woods of oak pine chestnut and maple it is a town of husbandmen chiefly with a few mechanics merchants and professional men in its villages a quiet region favorable to thought to rambling and to leisure as well as to that ceaseless industry by which new england lives and thrives its population in nineteen o nine approaches five thousand but at thoreau's birth it did not exceed two thousand there are few great estates in it and little poverty the mode of life has generally been plain and simple and was so in thoreau's time even more than now when he was born and for some years afterward there was but one church and the limits of the parish and the township were the same at that time it was one of the two shire towns of the great county of middlesex cambridge thirteen miles away being the other it was therefore a seat of justice and a local centre of trade 
attracting lawyers and merchants to its public square much more than of late years trade in concord then was very different from what it has been since the railroad began to work its revolutions in the old days long lines of teams from the upper country new hampshire and vermont loaded with the farm products of the interior stopped nightly at the taverns especially in the winter bound for the boston market whence they returned with a cargo for their own country if a thaw came on or there was bad sleighing in boston the drivers anxious to lighten their loads would sell and buy in the concord public square to the great profit of the numerous traders whose little shops stood around or near it then too the hitching posts in front of the shops had full rows of wagons and chaises from the neighboring towns fastened there all day long while the owners looked over goods priced chaffered and beat down by the hour together the calicoes sheetings shirtings kesemares and other articles of domestic need bringing in also the product of their own farms and looms to sell or exchange each store kept an assortment of west india goods dry goods hardware medicines furniture boots and shoes paints lumber lime and the miscellaneous articles of which the village or the farms might have need not to mention a special trade in new england rum and old jamaica hogsheads of which were brought up every week from boston by teams and sold or given away by the glass with an ungrudging hand a little earlier than the period now mentioned when colonel whiting father of the late eminent lawyer abraham lincoln's right-hand adviser in the law of emancipation william whiting of boston was a lad in concord village there were five stores and three taverns in the middle of the town where intoxicating liquors were sold by the glass to any and everybody and it was the custom when a person bought even so little as fifty cents worth of goods to offer him a glass of liquor and it was generally accepted such was the town when john thoreau the jersey man came there to die in eighteen hundred and such it remained during the mercantile days of john thoreau his son who was brought up in a house on the public square and learned the business of buying and selling in the store of deacon white close by pencil-making the art by which he earned his modest livelihood during henry thoreau's youth was introduced into concord about eighteen twelve by william monroe whose son has in later years richly endowed the small free library from which thoreau drew books and to which he gave some of his own in this handicraft which it was at times quite profitable the younger thoreaus assisted their father from time to time and henry acquired great skill in it even to the extent says mr emerson of making as good a pencil as the best english ones his friends congratulated him that he had now opened his way to fortune but he replied that he should never make another pencil why should i i would not do again what i have done once thoreau may have said this but he afterward changed his mind for he went on many years at intervals working at his father's business which in time grew to be mainly the preparation of fine ground plumbago for electrotyping this he supplied to various publishers and among others to the harpers for several years but what he did in this way was incidental and as an aid to his father his mother or his sister sophia who herself carried on the business for some time after the death of henry in eighteen sixty two it was the family employment and must be pursued by somebody perpetuity indeed and hereditary transmission of everything that by nature and good sense can be inherited are among the characteristics of concord 
The Haywood family has been resident in Concord for 250 years or so, and in that time has held the office of town clerk in lineal succession from father to son for 100 years at least. The grandson of the first John Haywood filled the office, which is the most responsible in town, and generally accompanied by other official trusts, for 18 years beginning in 1731. His son held the place with a slight interregnum for 13 years. His nephew, Dr. Abiel Haywood, was town clerk from 1796 to 1834 without a break, and Dr. Haywood's son, Mr. George Haywood, was the town clerk for 30-odd years after March 1853. Of the dozen ministers who since 1635 have preached in the parish church, five were either Bulkleys or Emersons, descendants of the first minister, or else connected by marriage with that clerical line, and the young minister who in the year 1882 accepted the pastorate of Reverend Peter Bulkley is a descendant and bears the same name. Mr. Emerson himself, the great clerk of Concord, which was his lay parish for almost half a century after he ceased to preach in its pulpit, counted among his ancestors four of the Concord pastors whose united ministry covered a century, while his grandmother's second husband, Dr. Ripley, added a half-century more to the family ministry. For this ancestral claim, quite as much as for his gift of wit and eloquence, Mr. Emerson was chosen in 1835 to commemorate by an oration the 200th anniversary of the town's settlement. In this discourse, he said, I have had much opportunity of access to anecdotes of families, and I believe this town to have been the dwelling place in all time since its planting of pious and excellent persons who walked meekly, through the paths of common life, who served God and loved man, and never let go their hope of immortality. I find our annals marked with a uniform good sense. I find no ridiculous laws, no eavesdropping legislators, no hanging of witches, no ghosts, no whipping of Quakers, no unnatural crimes. The old town clerks did not spell very correctly, but they contrived to make pretty intelligible the will of a free and just community." in such a community henry thoreau a free and just man was born dr haywood above named was the first town clerk he remembered and the one who entered on the records the marriage of his father and mother and the birth of all the children he cried the bands of john thoreau and cynthia dunbar in the parish meeting-house and he was the last clerk who made this sunday outcry he thus proclaimed his own autumnal nuptials in 1822 when he married for the first time at the age of 63. The bands were cried at the opening of the service, and this compelled the town clerk to be a more regular attendant in the meeting-house than his successors have found necessary. Dr. Haywood's pew was about halfway down the broad aisle, and in full view of the whole congregation, whether in the floor pews or up in the galleries. Wearing his old-fashioned coat and small clothes, the doctor would rise in his pew, deliberately adjust his spectacles, and look about for a moment, in order to make sure that his audience was prepared. Then he made his proclamation with much emphasis of voice and dignity of manner. There was a distinction, however, in the manner of publishing the bands of the white and the black citizens, the former being cried in the face of the whole congregation, and the latter simply posted in the meeting-house porch, as was afterwards the custom for all. Dr. Haywood, from a sense of justice or some other proper motive, determined on one occasion to post a white couple, instead of giving them the full benefit of his sonorous voice. 
but either because they missed the éclat of the usual proclamation or else felt humiliated at being posted like niggers in the porch they brought the town clerk to justice forthwith and he was forced for once to yield to popular outcry and join in the outcry himself after publishing his own bands and just before the wedding he for the first time procured a pair of trousers having worn knee-breeches up to that time as colonel may the father-in-law of mr alcott and others had thought it proper to wear them when dr haywood told his waggish junior squire brooks of the purchase and inquired how young gentlemen put their trousers on his legal neighbor advised him that they were generally put on over the head dr haywood survived amid this age loose and all unlaced as marvel says until eighteen thirty nine having practised medicine more or less in concord for upward of forty years and held court there as a local justice for almost as long dr isaac hurd who was his contemporary practised in concord for fifty-four years and in all sixty-five years and dr josiah bartlett who accompanied and succeeded dr hurd practised in concord nearly fifty-eight years while the united medical service of himself and his father dr josiah bartlett of charlestown was one hundred and two years dr bartlett himself was one of the most familiar figures in concord through thoreau's lifetime and for fifteen years after to him have been applied with more truth i suspect than to mr robert lovett a practiser in physic those noble lines of dr johnson on his humble friend well tried through many a varying year see levitt to the grave descend officious innocent sincere of every friendless name the friend he said more than once that for fifty years no severity of weather had kept him from visiting his distant patients sometimes miles away except once and then the snow is piled so high that his sleigh upset every two rods and when he unharnessed and mounted his horse the beast floundering through a drift slipped him off over his crupper he was a master of the horse and encouraged that proud creature to do his best in speed one of his neighbors mentioned in his hearing a former horse of dr bartlett's which was in the habit of running away by faith said the doctor his familiar oath i recollect that horse he was a fine traveller but i have no remembrance that he ever ran away when upwards of seventy he was looking for a new horse the jockey said doctor if you are not so old i have a horse that would suit you hm growled the doctor don't talk to me about old let's see your horse and he bought him and drove him for eight years he practised among the poor with no hope of reward and gave them besides his money his time and his influence one day a friend saw him receiving loads of firewood from a shiftless man to whom he had rendered gratuitous service in sickness for twenty years ah doctor you are getting some of your back pay by faith no the fellow is poor so i paid him for his wood and let him go dr bartlett did not reach concord quite in season to assist at the birth of henry thoreau but from the time his parents brought him back to his native town from boston in eighteen twenty three to the day of sophia thoreau's death in eighteen seventy six he might have supplied the needed medical aid to the family and often did so the young henry dwelt in his first tabernacle on the virginia road but eight months removing then to a house on the lexington road not far from where mr emerson afterwards established his residence on the edge of concord village in the meantime he had been baptized by dr ripley in the parish church at the age of three months and his mother boasted that he did not cry 
His aunt, Sarah Thoreau, taught him to walk when he was 14 months old, and before he was 16 months, he removed to Chelmsford, next to the meeting-house where they kept the powder in the garret, as was the custom in many village churches of New England then. Coming back to Concord before he was six years old, he soon began to drive his mother's cow to pasture barefoot, like other village boys, just as Emerson, when a boy in Boston a dozen years before, had driven his mother's cow where now the fine streets and halls are. Thoreau, like Emerson, began to go to school in Boston, where he lived for a year or more in Pinckney Street. But he returned to Concord in 1823, and except for short visits or long walking excursions, he never left the town again till he died in 1862. He there went on with his studies in the village schools and fitted for Harvard College at the academy which Squire Hoare, Colonel Whiting, Squire Brooks, and other magnates of the town had established about 1820. This private school was generally very well taught, and here Thoreau himself taught for a while in after years. In his boyhood, it had become a good place to study Greek, and in 1830, when perhaps Henry Thoreau was one of its pupils, Mr. Charles Emerson, visiting his friends in Concord, wrote thus of what he saw there. Mr. George Bradford and I attended the exhibition yesterday at the Academy. We were extremely gratified. To hear little girls saying their Greek grammar and young ladies read Xenophon was a new and very agreeable entertainment. Thoreau must have been beginning his Greek grammar about that time, for he entered college in 1833 and was then proficient in Greek. He must also have gone as a boy to the Concord Lyceum, where he afterwards lectured every winter. Concord, as the home of famous lawyers and active politicians, was always a place of resort for political leaders, and Thoreau might have seen and heard there all the celebrated congressmen and governors of Massachusetts at one time and another. He could remember the visit of Lafayette to Concord in 1824 and the semi-centennial celebration of the Concord fight in 1825. In 1830, he doubtless looked forward with expectation for the promised lecture of Edward Everett before the Lyceum, concerning which Mr. Everett wrote as follows to Dr. Ripley, November 3, 1830, I am positively forbidden by my physician to come to Concord today, to obviate as far as possible the inconvenience which this failure might cause the Lyceum. I send you the lecture which I should have delivered. It is one which I have delivered twice before, but my health has prevented me from preparing another. Although in print, as you see it, it has not been published. I held it back from publication to enable me with propriety to deliver it at Concord. Should you think it worth while to have it read to the meeting, it is at your service for that purpose. And should this be done, I would suggest, as it is one hour and three quarters long, that some parts should be omitted. For this reason, I have enclosed some passages in brackets which can be spared without affecting the context. It would hardly occur to a popular lecturer now to apologize because he had delivered his lecture twice before or to send the copy forward when he could not himself be there to read it. Mr. Emerson began to lecture in the Concord Lyceum before 1834, when he came to reside in the town. In October of that year, he wrote to Dr. Ripley, declining to give the opening lecture, but offering to speak in the course of the winter, as he did. During its first half-century, he lectured nearly a hundred times in this Lyceum, reading there, first and last, nearly all the essays he published in his lifetime, and many that have since been printed. Thoreau gave his first lecture there in April 1838, and afterwards lectured nearly every year for more than twenty years. 
on one occasion very early in his public career when the expected lecturer of the lyceum failed to come as mr everett had failed but had not been thoughtful enough to send a substitute henry thoreau and mr alcott were pressed into the service and spoke before the audience in duet and with opinions extremely heretical both being ardent radicals and come-outers a few years after this in eighteen forty three wendell phillips made his first appearance before the concord lyceum and spoke in a manner which thoreau has described in print and which led to a sharp village controversy not yet quite forgotten on either side but to return to the childhood and youth of thoreau when he was three or four years old at chelmsford on being told that he must die as well as the men in the new england primer and having the joys of heaven explained to him he said as he came in from coasting that he did not want to die and go to heaven because he could not carry his sled to so fine a place for he added the boy say it is not shod with iron and not worth a cent at the age of ten says channing he had the firmness of the indian and could repress his pathos and had such seriousness that he was called judge as an example of childish fortitude it is related that he carried his pet chickens for sale to the tavern keeper in a basket whereupon mr wesson told him to stop a minute and in order to return the basket promptly took the darlings out and wrung their necks one by one before the boy's eyes who wept inwardly but did not budge having a knack at whittling and being asked by a schoolmate to make him a bow and arrow young henry refused not deigning to give the reason that he had no knife so through life says channing he steadily declined trying or pretending to do what he had no means to execute yet forbore explanations he was a sturdy and kindly playmate whose mirthful tricks are yet remembered by those who frolicked with him and he always abounded with domestic affection while in college he once asked his mother what profession she would have him choose she said pleasantly you can buckle on your knapsack dear and roam abroad to seek your fortune but the thought of leaving home and forsaking concord made the tears roll down his cheeks then his sister helen who was standing by says channing tenderly put her arm around him and kissed him saying no henry you shall not go you shall stay at home and live with us and this indeed he did though he made one or two efforts to seek his fortune for a time elsewhere his reading had been wide and constant while at school and after he entered college at the age of sixteen his room in cambridge was in hollis hall his instructors were such as he found there but in rhetoric he profited much by the keen intelligence of professor channing an uncle of his future friend and biographer ellery channing i think he also came in contact while in college with that singular poet jones Vary of salem he was by no means unsocial in college though he did not form such abiding friendships as do many young men he graduated in eighteen thirty seven his expenses at cambridge which were very moderate compared with what a poor scholar must now pay to go through college were paid in part by his father in part by his aunts and his elder sister helen who had already begun to teach school and for the rest he depended on his own efforts and the beneficiary funds of the college in which he had some little share i have understood that he received the income of the same modest endowment which had been given to william and ralph waldo emerson when in college some years before and in other ways the generous thought of that most princely man waldo emerson was not idle in his behalf though he knew thoreau then only as the studious son of a townsman who needed a friend at court what mr emerson wrote to josiah quincy who was then president of harvard college in behalf of henry thoreau does not appear except from the terms of old quincy's reply but we may infer it 
Thoreau had the resource of schoolkeeping in the country towns during the college vacation and the extra vacation that a poor scholar could claim, and this brought him, in 1835, to an acquaintance with that elder scholar, Brownson, who afterwards became a Catholic doctor of theology. He left college one winter to teach school at Canton near Boston, where he was examined by Reverend Orestes A. Brownson, then a Protestant minister in Canton. He studied German and boarded with Mr. Brownson while he taught the school. In 1836, he records in his journal that he went to New York with father, peddling. In his senior year, 1836-37, to 37, he was ill for a time and lost rank with his instructors by his indifference to the ordinary college motives for study. This fact, and also that he was a beneficiary of the college, further appears from the letter of President Quincy to Mr. Emerson as follows. Cambridge, 25th June, 1837. My dear sir, your view concerning Thoreau is entirely in consent with that which I entertain. His general conduct has been very satisfactory, and I was willing and desirous that whatever falling off there had been in his scholarship should be attributable to his sickness. He had, however, imbibed some notions concerning emulation and college rank, which had a natural tendency to diminish his zeal, if not his exertions. His instructors were impressed with the conviction that he was indifferent, even to a degree, that was faulty, and that they could not recommend him, consistent with the rule by which they are usually governed in relation to beneficiaries. I have always entertained a respect for an interest in him, and was willing to attribute any apparent neglect or indifference to his ill health rather than to willfulness. I obtained from the instructors the authority to state all the facts to the corporation, and submit the result to their discretion. This I did, and that body granted $25, which was within 10 or at most $15 of any sum he would have received had no objection been made. There is no doubt that from, there is no doubt that from some cause an unfavorable opinion has been entertained since his return after his sickness of his disposition to exert himself. To what it has been owing may be doubtful. I appreciate very fully the goodness of his heart and the strictness of his moral principle and have done as much for him as, under the circumstances, was possible. Very respectfully, your humble servant, Josiah Quincy, Reverend R. H. Emerson. It is possible the college faculty may have had other grounds of distrust in Thoreau's case. On May 30, 1836, his classmate Peabody wrote him the following letter from Cambridge, Thoreau being then at home for some reason, from which we may infer that the sober youth was not averse to such deeds as are there related. The Davy Club got into a little trouble the week before last from the following circumstance. H.W. gave a lecture on pyrotechny and illustrated it with a parcel of fireworks he had prepared in the vacation. As you may imagine, there was some slight noise on the occasion. In fact, the noise was so slight that Tudor B. heard it at his room in Hallworthy. This worthy boldly determined to march forth and attack the rioters. Accordingly, in the midst of a grand display of rockets, etc., he stepped into the room and, having gazed round him in silent astonishment for the space of two minutes, and hearing various cries of intrusion throw him over, saw his leg off, pull his wool, etc., he made two or three dignified motions with his hand to gain attention and then kindly advise us to retire to our respective rooms. Strange to say, he found no one inclined to follow this good advice, and he accordingly thought fit to withdraw. There is, as perhaps you know, a law against keeping powder in the college buildings. The effect of Tudor B.'s intrusion was evident on the next Monday night when H.W. and B. were invited to call and see President Quincy. 
and owing to the tough reasoning of tudor b who boldly asserted that powder was powder they were each presented with a public admonition we had a miniature volcano at webster's lecture the other morning this was professor webster afterwards hanged for the murder of dr parkman and the odors therefrom surpassed all ever produced by araby the blessed imagine to yourself all the windows and shutters of the lecture-room closed and then conceive the delightful scent produced by the burning of nearly a bushel of sulphur phosphoretted hydrogen and other still more pleasant ingredients as soon as the burning commenced there was a general rush to the door and a crowd collected there running out every half minute to get a breath of fresh air and then coming in to see the volcano no noise nor nothing bigelow and dr bacon manufactured some laughing gas and administered it on the delta it was much better than that made by webster jack weiss took some as usual wheeler joe allen and hildreth each received a dose wheeler proceeded to dance for the amusement of the company joe jumped over the delta fence and sam raved about milton shakespeare and byron etc he took two doses it produced a great effect on him he seemed to be as happy as a mortal could desire talked with shakespeare milton etc and seemed to be quite at home with them the persons named were classmates of thoreau one of them afterward reverend john weiss wheeler was of lincoln and died early in germany whither he went to study samuel tenney hildreth was a brother of richard hildreth the historian and also died young the zest with which his classmates related these pranks to thoreau seems to imply in his correspondent a mind too ready towards such things to please the learned faculty of cambridge mr quincy's letter was in reply to one which mr emerson had written at the request of mrs thoreau who feared her son was not receiving justice from the college authorities thoreau graduated without much distinction but with a good name among his classmates and a high reputation for general scholarship when he went to maine in may eighteen thirty eight to see if there was not some school for him to teach there he took with him this certificate from his pastor dr ripley concord may one eighteen thirty eight to the friends of education the undersigned very cheerfully hereby introduces to public notice the bearer mr david henry thoreau as a teacher in the higher branches of useful literature he is a native of this town and a graduate of harvard university he is well disposed and well qualified to instruct the rising generation his scholarship and moral character will bear the strictest scrutiny he is modest and mild in his disposition and government but not wanting in energy of character and fidelity in the duties of his profession it is presumed his character and usefulness will be appreciated more highly as an acquaintance with him shall be cultivated cordial wishes for his success reputation and usefulness attend him as an instructor and gentleman ezra ripley senior pastor of the first church in concord massachusetts note well it is but justice to observe here that the eyesight of the writer is much impaired accompanying this artless document is a list of clergymen in the towns of maine portland belfast camden kennebunk castine ellsworth etc in the handwriting of the good old pastor signifying that as young thoreau travelled he should report himself to these brethren who might forward his wishes but even at that early date i suspect that thoreau undervalued the d d s in comparison with the chickadee d s as he plainly declared in his later years another certificate in a firmer hand and showing no token of impaired eyesight was also carried by thoreau in this first visit to maine it was this i cordially recommend mr henry d thoreau a graduate of harvard university in august eighteen thirty seven to the confidence of such parents or guardians as may propose to employ him as an instructor i have the highest confidence in mr thoreau's moral character and in his intellectual ability 
He is an excellent scholar, a man of energy and kindness, and I shall esteem the town fortunate that secures his services. R. Waldo Emerson, Concord, May 2, 1838. The acquaintance of Mr. Emerson with his young townsman had begun perhaps a year before this date, and had advanced very fast toward intimacy. It originated in this way. A lady connected with Mr. Emerson's family was visiting at Mrs. Thoreau's while Henry was in college, and the conversation turned on a lecture lately read in Concord by Mr. Emerson. Miss Helen Thoreau surprised the visitor by saying, My brother Henry has a passage in his diary containing the same things that Mr. Emerson has said. This remark being questioned, the diary was produced, and sure enough, the thought of the two passages was found to be very similar. The incident being reported to Mr. Emerson, he desired the lady to bring Henry Thoreau to see him, which was soon done, and the intimacy began. It was to this same lady, Mrs. Brown of Plymouth, that Thoreau addressed one of his earliest poems, the verses called Sic Vita, in the week on the Concord and Merrimack, commencing, I am a parcel of vain strivings tied by a chance bond together. These verses were written on a strip of paper enclosing a bunch of violets gathered in May 1837 and thrown in at Mrs. Brown's window by the poet naturalist. They show that he had read George Herbert carefully at a time when few persons did so, and in other ways they are characteristic of the writer, who was then not quite twenty years old. It may be interesting to see what old Quincy himself said in a certificate about his stubbornly independent pupil. For the same main journey, Cambridge furnished this Concord scholar with this document. Harvard University, Cambridge, March 26, 1838. To whom it may concern, I certify that Henry D. Thoreau of Concord in this state of Massachusetts graduated at this seminary in August 1837, that his rank was high as a scholar in all the branches, and his morals and general conduct unexceptional and exemplary. He is recommended as well qualified as an instructor for employment in any public or private school or private family. Josiah Quincy, president of Harvard University. It seems that there was question at this time of a school in Alexandria near Washington, perhaps the theological seminary for Episcopalians there, in which young Thoreau might find a place, for on the 12th of April, 1838, President Quincy wrote to him as follows, Sir, the school is at Alexandria. The students are said to be young men well advanced in ye knowledge of ye Latin and Greek classics, the requisitions are qualification and a person who has had experience in schoolkeeping, salary six hundred dollars a year, besides washing and board, duties to be entered on ye fifth or sixth of May. If you choose to apply, I will write as soon as I am informed of it. State to me your experience in schoolkeeping. Yours, Josiah Quincy. We now know that Thoreau offered himself for the place, and we know that his journey to Maine was fruitless. He did, in fact, teach the town grammar school in Concord for a few weeks in 1837, and in July 1838 was teaching at the Parkman House in Concord. He had already, as we have seen, though not yet 21, appeared as a lecturer before the Concord Lyceum. It is therefore time to consider him as a citizen of Concord and to exhibit further the character of that town. Note, the tutor mentioned on page 55 was Francis Bowen, afterward professor at Harvard, the other B was H. J. Bigelow, afterward a noted surgeon in Boston. End of chapter two.